Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. And today I'm very happy and we are very privileged to have on the podcast MEP Svenja Hahn. Svenja is not only a wonderful person, but she's also a skilled politician and, in my assessment, one of the rising stars in the liberal political field in the European Parliament. She has a rich, experienced past that we will go into during the conversation. That includes being president of LIMEC, the Youth Organization of Liberals in Europe, vice president of our own European Liberal Forum Board, and vice president of the ALDE Party. And, as I said, she's an MEP for the German party FDP. We go into one of the topics that Svenja holds dear, and that is human rights, and in this case, via conditions for trade with the European Union, but also the future of industry and innovation in Europe. And after our conversation, stay for the events of the week, where I will briefly talk about the upcoming Freedom Games from our friends in Wuj with the Liberty Foundation and with Leszek, that, as you know, is the other guest of this podcast. But now, with no further ado, I bring you Svenja Han. I'm here with Svenja Ann. Svenja, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Oh, it's a privilege for us to have you here. And I should say to our listeners that I've been following your career for some time now, and I think you're a fantastic MEP, and I'm looking forward for what the future brings to you at the political level. But today I brought you here so that we can talk about something you care about, which is trade, European values and how those mechanics play uh, when you, for example, that you are inside the machinery, when you sit with someone, some delegation, and what are your modes of thinking. But before that, to our listeners, because the first time we have you on the podcast, tell us a little bit about yourself. So what was the path taken that you get to this point that we're talking here in the podcast? Well, thank you so much, Ricardo, for your very kind words. I mean, I think this is always what you strive for as a politician, that with the work you do, you can inspire other people and uh, create some interest in the political work or you know inspire them to to do their own thing what they what they work for what they believe in for and uh, that is how i got into politics as well i mean i got into politics out of frustration and i think this is a story uh, <laughs> quite a lot of people share when they start becoming active uh, for me, it was back in the days when I started studying. I was very, very keen on studying. I wanted to study history since I was like 14 or 15. And I couldn't because there was big demonstrations and the mm. students were demonstrating for more money for education. And they did so by blocking all the hallways, all the buildings of the university. So for the first weeks, I could not start studying. And I was kind of mad with them because they were keeping me away from what I wanted. But also, I mean, I agreed with them. I also wanted more money. For, for education, but I didn't agree with the means. But I realized, who am I to complain? If I'm not doing something, they at least do something, even if I'm not agreeing with the means. So it's like, well, if you want to do something, you need to go where you can do something. So I, I, I joined the Liberals. That was clear for me, 2009. That's how long ago it was already by now. It was the gen, uh, national election, it was the uh, European elections, and I had looked, I was voting Liberal. So it, there was no doubt which party I would join if I joined one. I joined the students' movement, I ran for the student council, I got elected, that was actually my first parliamentary experience. But I very quickly realized there's more to life than your just immediate surroundings. And I fell in love with European politics. I started my uh, activism on the European level, the European Liberal Youth, which is the youth organization. 
um, of, uh, of uh, the ALDE party and also youth wing of the Renew Europe group in the European Parliament. I was a member of the board and president between 2014 and uh, 2020. And I dedicated basically all my, my free time, all my passion for that. And that's in that six years, I've been traveling through 35 European countries. Um, I have met young people from all over the continent. I was demonstrating for media freedom against corruption. I was supporting youth organizations and their foundations. And this was really my passion. And I was at a, at a stage, you know, now in my late 20s, so I was like at a point, okay, I either focus on my career or I try to turn my passion uh, into a career. And that was in 2019 when I decided to run for the European Parliament. And I got elected. And since then, I had the great, great opportunity to do every day what I love for. This is uh, this is not a job, you know, this for me really is passion. And I started working in the committees for the single market and uh, international trade because this for me is also at the core of liberalism. It is about creating opportunities for people. If you have a good economy, you can have a good education, you can uh, try to achieve your dream job to build your own life. Um, so that for me is, is the reason why I do trade and economy and also digital policy, because it's the tool to be, you know, the hero of your own life, to say so. And uh, it is for the benefit of all of us that you were elected as an MEP. And again, to our listeners, as Svenja was explaining, uh, you already have quite a lot of work. As you were saying, you were in LIMEC, you were also part of the European Liberal Forum. But let me just do a little quick follow-up because your first love was history then. Do you still go back to that, that earlier love? Yes, I have not given up the idea of maybe one day I'm going to do a history PhD. You know, it's kind mm. of like a dream in the back <laughs> of my mind. No, I, I still have a lot of interest. I actually studied history and uh, journalism as a bachelor and media studies in my master. Uh, I have a professional background in communications. Uh, so before entering the parliament, I was head of the communication department of a German brand. So this is where, where my professional background is. Uh, where I still have a lot of interest. Uh, you, you can ask my staff, uh, especially my communication officer. Uh, there, there's nothing going on that I have not been in touch with. Uh, and I think he, he's the one that gets the most critical feedback from me. I guess you can't help yourself. But I would say uh, I still keep uh, history as, uh, as a hobby. My favorite podcasts, for example, of course yours, uh, but oh, are also you. some some history podcasts, for example, I, I binge listen to it. Can you say that? Binge watch, binge, binge listen. <laughs> binge listen to it. Especially when traveling. It's a my to go podcast on the plane. I, I can give you a couple of recommendations about some good history podcasts. Probably we were listening to the same stuff. Would love that. <laughs> and the invitation is made for you when you do your PhD thesis to come back to the podcast so that we can talk about some history. Probably some liberal history. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have no clue, but it's like, you know, I thought like that'd be so cool. Um, one day in my life, I don't know, but uh, not on the focus agenda right now. Well, give us an exclusive when the time comes. I like All right, getting to the uh, crux of our conversation, I'm going to challenge you, please, to start easy to our listeners and to myself, which is to understand some of the technical terms that we're going to use from now. 
for example, and I read about this, when we have trades, there are multiple organizations involved. There's European Council, the European Parliament, there's the European Union itself. Then there's our partners, and then there's our adversaries. <laughs> Something that me and Svenja talked about already that in person, but we may get into that later in this podcast. So tell us a little bit how this thing runs. Does it run smoothly? It's very complicated. Let us know. Well, of course, you you have, I would say, like the framework, which is the World Trade Organization. Those, I would say, are, are the basic rules for trade. Very basic um, and not really meeting for every, every occasion. I, I, I like to compare it to, you know, when, when you want to build a house. Um, you have, you know, from your provider, you have the basic floor plan and you have the suggestion from them. But um, maybe, you know, maybe you don't want an office because you have three children. So maybe, you, you know, you need like three children rooms. So you don't want to just go with a basic floor plan. You want to adapt the floor plan to your actual need. And by doing that, in that uh, comparison, that uh, adapted floor plan would be a trade agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so the WTO is just giving the basic rules of collaboration. We could talk a whole evening about what needs to be reformed on the WTO because there are clearly some issues. It has been blocked um, by, by many members, actually, because everyone was in there for their own benefit. Uh, the EU is actually working on, on working towards reform. We first had a commitment uh, this year at the minister conference, the trade minister meet uh, regularly. They met in Geneva this year and they committed on a reform until the uh, reform proposal to negotiate on um, at the next minister meeting. So that is something good. Uh, so the basic rules hopefully going to get reformed soon. But, uh, you know, let's talk about the adapted floor plan, which is something that really um, meets what you need. And uh, that, uh, that the gold standard, I would say, is the free trade agreement. You have also different forms. Uh, you could also have, for example, an investment agreement. You can have an agreement on protection of geographic indications, for example, um, champagne, champagne, uh, mozzarella, uh, all these kind of things are geographically protected. Then there are also other forms, for example, um, the so-called general scheme of preferences that, for example, is for partners that are not uh, as economically strong as the European Union. And you also have the the GSP, which is the general scheme of preferences that is for partners that are not as economically strong as the European Union. It's aimed for giving opportunities for developing countries so they can um, bring almost all their goods uh, into the European Union uh, without duties, for example. So that is kind of a development aid. So you have different kinds of trade relations with partners and you can really see which format would work for which partner. And you mentioned the World Trade Organizations and like our listeners are already identifying, we're going to talk about trade, but we're going to talk about something associated with trade. And I noticed that the World Trade Organization already has in its charter to defend anti-discrimination to have predictability of the markets and fair competition, which is particularly the last one. It's quite a a liberal value. And then we do have our values in the European Union, actually, coming from the Article 2 of the Lisbon Treaty. So as you were saying, so as as you're making that scaffold, as you're building that house, how 
present are these things when you and your your team on the You guys are developing this. Basically, all the policy of the European Union must strengthen or must try to amplify its founding values. And for example, in free trade agreements, it is reflected in the so-called trade and sustainable development chapters. These are chapters, for example, on how to combat climate change, trade and technology, Mm -hmm. but also on uh, safeguarding human rights. Uh, this is a discussion that is often coming up, uh, also in my opinion, because in the lack of a working, uh, in, in, because of the absence of uh, working foreign policy, that a lot of expectations are put forward to trade, which is normally foreign policy, for example, in regard of human rights. I'm a strong advocate that trade is a tool to make the life of people better. Um, for us in Europe, it m- maybe means securing securing jobs, creating economic growth. But for many of our trade partners, it actually means creating a way out of poverty into um, a more digni- dignified life, uh, into you know not worrying how do I feed my family the next day. So trade for me is a tool to create opportunities. And responsible business conduct means uh, conducting your business in a way that is not harming people uh, that leaves an environment for next generation to to deal with. Uh, so I think it's it's very crucial. But we also need to be realistic. What can be achieved through trade and what needs other means uh, like foreign policy? And uh, let me give you one example. We have a trade agreement with Vietnam. Vietnam is a communist country. And that trade agreement has not turned magically overnight into a democracy. Um, but through that trade agreement, they had to make commitment not, not to our standards, it's not what we said as EU, this is what we want, but to actually uh, things that have been agreed on an international level. And I think this is this is important to distinguish. It's not about um, meeting, you know, that the Europeans came up with this and now are asking their partners. It is, for example, the, the codex and, and the rules of the international labor organization, like forbidding... Uh, child labor, like um, having maximum labor hours, uh, but also, for example, allowing freedom of assembly and uh, right to unionize. Uh, This is something that is now allowed in a communistic country. So this is something that I see as a clear achievement. And it is something that is internationally agreed on that this should be should be standards in regards to human rights. So it's it's not something that the uh, EU is pressing upon people or, or other partners, it is, uh, for my for my understanding, the bare minimum that should be done because it's also already internationally agreed. So what I'm always calling for is being pragmatic about what trade can do because trade has to play a role. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fully, fully uh, strong advocate for that. But we also need to be realistic and especially we need to um, really, really work on a comprehensive foreign policy uh, as the European Union. Let me stay here because this duality between realism and, and intentions and, and good intentions. And thank you so much for saying that to our listeners. Well, our listeners are sophisticated ones, but there's this idea that, oh, yeah, now the European Union is setting the standards. No, as you explained correctly, so or the standards are there. Of course, we can add some, but not in a way that it's completely overwhelming. But Mel, like I said, Svenja, let me stay here because I'm going to read something, quote you, in fact. 
Something that I want to ask you and, and relates to this duality between realism and intentions. When Philippines was negotiating with the European Union, you said, and I quote, if there is no substantial improvement and willingness from the Philippines government to meet their human rights obligations under the GSP, we expect the Commission to withdraw the trade preferences. So again, it goes back to what you were saying, which is your interest in, in human rights. So w when is the time... Where is that frontier where you say, okay, now we have to take a position and we have to be unpleasant, even if it is in a very democratic, sorry, in a very diplomatic way, but we have to be unpleasant? Yeah, I, uh, I think it is about a matter of uh, trustworthiness and are you a serious uh, partner? Because the GSP, as I said, is the general scheme of preferences. This is meant for the least developed countries. So basically the only rules that they need to comply with in order to get this preferential access to the European single market is to comply with basic human rights. And so this is, uh, they need to comply with this basic human rights in order to get this trade access. So when they are not complying to this very, very basic rules, I think we are not a serious partner if we're not setting our foot on the ground and saying, you are not making your part of the deal. So our consequences need to be, if you're not changing this, and this is the changes we demand, uh, for example, in the, in the question of the Philippines, it is some laws that are clearly against human rights to, to repeal those laws, um, then we are going to invoke this um, benefits that you're having. Because I think if we are not consequent uh, in following up if those frameworks that we agreed on, on those, on those common set of understanding agreed on are not met, I'm sorry, who's going to take us serious as a, as a partner if uh, we are not following up on that, if anyone can do what they want, this is not how an uh, agreement works. Uh, so I think this is the, the strongest problem um, that I have in that regard. It's about responsibility and credibility. Is any country or market too big for that line to move dramatically or do you and of course you can only give you give us your experience and your thoughts but are you non-negotiable on that point oh, to me that is very non-negotiable it, it is about human rights uh, but the situation for example is different uh, in different countries um, for example uh, we we have the situation in in, um, in Myanmar, where we have the military junta taking over mm -hmm. uh, over the country, and um, it, it's still um, it's the the everything but arms agreement, the EBA. Um, it says you can basically bring everything but arms in, into the single market is still in place. Um, for me, this is uh, this is outrageous. Um, I, I want to make sure that not one single conglomerate of the military is um, financially benefiting from this. Um, of course, you always need to, need, it's always hard to find a balance because, of course, you can also harm normal people on this. Um, but I think it's also about making a, making a political point. And then, of course, we have countries with, we do not have an agreement with, for example, China. Uh, which is also uh, a massive human rights abuser. Uh, we are all well aware of the reports of, um, of the discrimination of the internation 
um, or the torture of, uh, for example, Xinjiang region of the Uyghur people. This, as we're not having uh, an agreement, there's nothing you can withdraw with, but it's something we have reacted, for example, um, in uh, sanctions on, on individual perpetrators, uh, which actually led to, to from China to counter sanction as their reaction uh, for example, the Human Rights Committee of the European Parliament, which led to the European Parliament to say, okay, we're, we're not going to move forward with an investment agreement that was agreed on. This is fascinating uh, to have this insight from you. Moving on, because we're running out of time, uh, there are other areas that you do a fantastic work, and you already mentioned the climate questions, but also you are a strong supporter of the small and medium enterprise. In your opinion, what are other forefronts in your concern about other questions that may involve trade in the near future? Uh, for me, this is clearly about trade and technology and uh, a framework for, for digital technologies. I'm currently also working on the legislation for artificial intelligence, clearly one of the new technologies that has a huge potential for the European economy. We're actually immensely strong when it comes to research, but we're very weak in putting things actually to the market. And this is because of the lack of a digital single market that we're having. There are still too many hurdles in um, mm -hmm. scaling up your, your product, your business model in the EU. So many actually decide to go to the bringing into the market uh, to go to the US. And I think this is something that I would really like to change to to create a di working digital single market in the European Union, um, but also work more on the aspects of trade and technology and uh, flow of data. Uh, I think this is uh, something where we can have a lot of potential that we could uh, cover. This brings me to a sentence that you had, but you already started to open the door to the conversation, with, which is the sentence goes, quote, now our biggest industries are old ones, <laughs> end quote. Uh, so we're not going to be making electric cars and uh, electric components. <laughs> you think that we should uh, just move away and just be all AI bots on the internet? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, we see that European, <laughs> you said about uh, electric cars, European car manufacturers are actually quite well at, at producing electric cars, for example. But the, the industries we have are, are classic ones. It's, uh, we have very strong machinery sector. We have a strong uh, production sector. Um, we have a strong industry when it comes to uh, producing raw material and stuff. So we are very, very strong on that. So I think we have the advantage to, to be on that forefront, uh, but we need to work on bringing those sectors to the next level, uh, especially with the digital and the, the green transition. But also we need to talk about how new ideas can come from Europe. And I'm not talking about what I'm all often hearing, oh, the next Google or the next... Facebook or the next Amazon need to come from Europe. I don't want to talk about that. I don't think we, we need to copy um, what someone else has invented. But I think we should ask ourselves why the, the most valuable companies in the world are by far non-European. Um, why the most valuable companies we have uh, are much, much older than when I compare it to, to for example, US companies. Um, so the question is, how can we can we ensure that new innovators, companies, or ideas can can flourish and be nourished uh, in uh, in the EU? 
And I think this is something that we have to do with the um, legislation on, on, uh, on the whole digital world. We had uh, new rules for, for fair competition. Uh, we had new rules on um, responsibilities for platforms. And currently we're working on a legislation for artificial intelligence. And I think there is the challenge that we need to find a way to safeguard citizens' rights. If I look to countries like China and I see they use technologies like AI to surveillance and to oppress their citizens, this is something that we need to set a clear no to in the European Union. Uh, but also we cannot be in a world when I hear colleagues, especially from the left side, that say, um, you know, every algorithm should have a warning or need a third party assessment. Um, this is uh, ridiculous. I mean, there's not... I mean, what can be the worst harm that the Spotify algorithm is going to do to you? Uh, listen to a folk song? So I, th I think we need to find a way that we create a legal environment, that we create a market environment and a research environment that is really, really attractive for investors to come here, for developers to play around with the ideas and to actually bring it to the market so that we can make the transformation of the old... Uh, well-established industries where that we're having, but also have the new next big thing um, coming in Europe. Do you have an intuition of what that could be? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, okay. <laughs> we, we, we can be very big, for example, in the, in the B2B um, sector, um, I think, because we are already very strong, so we could be very easily developing those, those new things. Uh, but the potential of artificial intelligence, if, if we just stay with this one topic, it's so huge. It's hard to predict just alone. If you look, for example, at the medical sector, there, there are so many benefits and it's hard to predict uh, what technology can, can be able to, to in a few years where it can really support the health and well-being and the work of doctors. So I would not dare to know that. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's exactly, I mean, you're lucky right now. That exactly is a challenge for lawmakers. Lawmakers tend to look at what have been and then look at that and try to overregulate that a bit. Uh, but now we actually are in the challenging situation that we need to create a legal framework for something we do not have no clue where this can develop without killing it in the beginning. Um, so my goal really is to set a slim framework that is really based on fundamental human rights, on um, fair market principles, and on proportionality. Uh, and then let's go for the adventure and let innovation flow in Europe. Well, I must say that I totally agree with our friends from the left of over-labeling algorithms because if Spotify gives me one more Macarena song, I think I'm going to go <laughs> nuts. So. Well, I mean, the algorithm is not getting it from nowhere. So. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, crap. I understood now where the songs are coming from. <laughs> Seriously, I'm more of a Nine Inch Nails kind of guy. Svenja, <laughs> as we're getting into the end of our time together, I'm going to ask you to please come back to the podcast. We just started to talk about this uh, fascinating world that uh, involves us that we should know more about. But now please tell us where can people find your work, uh, particularly online, of course. Feel free to always reach out. I mean, the easiest is uh, if you go to the website of the European Parliament, you find my website there, you find my email address there. 
uh, but also feel free to reach out on social media. I'm on Facebook if you're still there, I'm on Instagram, for example, on Twitter or on LinkedIn, and you can find me anywhere under my name, Svenja, uh, and the last name is Han. I'm going to put all the links on the podcast show notes. Milady, this is a privilege. I was looking forward to have this conversation with you for some time now. Me too. For our listeners, I've been trying to have Svenja on the podcast for two years now, but it was as advertised. This was amazing. And thank you so much for spending some time with me. I'm so sorry that it took so long for me to finally get here. Uh, for your busy women, you're saving the European <laughs> Union one day at a time. No, it was really, really fun. It was really a short, uh, short time now to be here with you. Really lovely. All right, to be continued then. Oh, I'm so in for that. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for the part where I tell you about some of the events organized by Elfa this week. And as promised, I have with me Leszek from Liberty Foundation and the other host of our podcast to talk about the Freedom Games. That is going to happen from the 14th to the 16th of October in Łódź. I'm here with Leszek. Leszek, thank you so much for talking to me about Freedom Games. Hi, Ricardo. So glad to be on the other side. Oh, yes. And you have been doing a fantastic job hosting the Central Eastern Focus part of our podcast. Congratulations for that. We're almost at the okay. one-year mark. Time flies when we're having fun. And you're also the Vice President of Liberty Foundation and, of course, the organizers of the Amazing Freedom Games, which is the reason why you're here with us today. So tell us what is the main topic of this year's edition. So if you don't know anything about the Freedom Games, this is the, well, big intellectual events also organized with the help of ELF uh, in Poland, in Łódź, my hometown uh, in the center of Poland. This edition of Freedom Games is about the green independence. So we want to talk about the climate issues and how to save the planet, but also combine it with the threats, which is the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the consequences of it. And independence means that if you want, if you want to have the energy transition, we also have to think how we want to be independent from the sources like Russian gas. And of course, we see the connection because countries which are dependent on on Russian gas and oil, um, they can't really make independent political decisions and are also in a deep economic and well, unfortunately, also perhaps in the future social crisis. So war and climate are the big issues we want to discuss on these editions of uh, Freedom Games. Then tell our listeners where they can join us, either in person, also because there's many online sessions. Yes, so program is immensely rich and it's like four different scenes and um, which will be online and two of those will be in English. So uh, either through the Liberta Facebook uh, or through our website, uh, which is exiskawolności.pl. I'm very sorry, it's a Polish name. Uh, maybe, Ricardo, you'd like to put it on, on the website of the podcast for people to at least click the link. Mm, this, this is the easiest way to, to, to join and, and watch and stream is, is well, we're going to cover basically everything. So I think you're not going to miss much if you, of course, we encourage you to come, but if you can't, you, you will see almost everything online. 
also working for next year to have an on-live session of our podcast on the Freedom Games. So I'm looking forward for that and also to our listeners so that they can see me and Leszek, not only our voices, but apparently also our faces when we are streaming online our podcast life. Leszek, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, looking forward to see you in wonderful woods. To our listeners, please follow then the links that I'm going to put so that you can be in the event, either in person or remotely. And uh, Leszek, talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Ricardo, for the invitation and see you soon at Freedom Games. Now for the other major event happening this week, it's going to be in Prague at the Kizerstein Palace, but also online. It's going to take place on the 14th of October from 10 to 3.30 p.m. Central Eastern Time. We have the conference Multiple Challenges of Transatlantic Partnerships. And this is from our friends of the Institute for Politics and Society in Prague. In this conference, the most pressing issues will be addressed regarding the actual status of the cooperation between the European Union and the United States. And the topics will range from regular affairs, but also a special focus on Ukraine, how to fight inflation, reinforce supply chains, how to deal with energy independence and trade. To know more about this event, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.